Listener Production. This is Real Crime, Australian Detectives, and I'm Adam Shand. My guest has been called the Lie Detective. Steve Van Apron was an investigator in South Australia and Victoria before becoming one of the world's leading experts in the polygraph, or lie detector. Today, he works with police forces on active cases, including homicides, conducting polygraph tests and analysing the behaviours of suspects. We'll be talking about how to spot a liar and what makes the best liars who can even beat the polygraph. Steve Van Apperen, welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I guess the search for truth is a universal one, particularly in law enforcement, where it's all about cracking the veil of deceit. But this has been your career. Tell me, how did you start on this journey? Well, it's interesting because I um, I joined the South Australia Police at the tender age of 20. And I remember I was working with a colleague and he said to me once, he said, I hate when people lie to me. And my first response is, you're in the wrong job. <laughs> and I was always fascinated about you know, the psychology of what made people do what they do. So after serving in South Australia, I eventually transferred to Victoria Place and I was a detective down at Flemington and um, I was always interested in psychological profiling, what made serial killers and serial sex offenders tick. So, yeah, it's funny because I never wanted to be a policeman. But I was always interested in psychology and what makes people tick. And I remember many years ago reading a a paper and they were saying the three top reasons why people confess to crimes is one, they like the interviewer. Two, to get it off their chest. Three, they believe the evidence is so overwhelmingly against them that further resistance is futile. And I thought, isn't that interesting? And I remember I did a, a course in the US, I've done a number of courses, but one of them was called Adaptive Interviewing. And it was run by Ron Hilly, who uh, is a retired FBI instructor. One of the things that he you know, really impressed upon the students was that there's no such thing as a bad interviewee, but there's definitely such a thing as a bad interviewer. Why? Because A, they don't ask the right questions. But secondly, you know, they're not paying attention. Like, I can teach anyone in half a day how to be good interviewers, but the first thing I tell intelligence agencies and homicide squads that I work with is you're not simply just a question asker. Think of yourself more as an analyst of human behaviour. So if the question becomes a threatening stimulus, and then I see changes in behaviour, blocking, masking, concealment behaviours and so on, then that's a red flag because if they're sidestepping the issue, they're not answering it, and that question created the threatening stimulus, then I want to know why. So good interviewers pick that up, whereas I see a lot of interviewers, they just go through the process of asking questions but not analysing the associated behaviour. Fascinating. Now, first job, South Australia Police, what did you do? Uh, back in those days, just general duties, uh, uniform, and uh, a little bit of undercover work. I worked at Operational Support Group and that was basically relief in different areas when they had different issues or different problems. So they'd send us to an area. So it could be crowd policing, it could be um, general duties, it could be whatever. And that was my foray into general duties policing. But I always had a hankering for more than that. I was always fascinated by the investigative process. So detective work. Yeah. So, But I remember in Victoria Police, I did a degree in uh, crim justice 
Bond's administration, there were a couple of other you know, senior detectives who did the course, and one of them said, Steve, why don't you go to crime scene analysis? Or, you know, back then it was crime scene analysis. And I said to him, I said, I could think of nothing worse than spending you know, hours and hours looking through a room for one pubic hair or something like that. He said, oh, no, it's not what you, what you think. And then as soon as the television program CSI come into existence, they had a two-and-a-half-year waiting list. So I was fascinated about that side of it, but the thing that really interests me, a lot of detectives I worked with were not really good at spotting liars. And, you know, it really intrigued me. I mean, you would think if every day you're dealing with people and you're interviewing people, then you would think you'd develop that skill sets. But the problem is in, in a lot of police interviews, you would basically prove identity and then you would put what we call the points of proof to the suspect. And points of proof is just legalese for, you know, uh, covering uh, certain parts of uh, an offence. But I was always interested in the why. What is it that made them do that? And I remember uh, some training in the States uh, with the FBI and they said, um, if somebody confesses to you, ask them why they confess to you because it can only make you a better interviewer. If you're interviewing somebody, and let's just say, and the FBI are really big on this, um, they call it theme development. So let me give you a quick example. Let's say I'm interviewing you for a, um, a theft. Right? So I might say to you after initial behaviour analysis where, let me break it up, behaviour analysis is where I'm looking for responses, how people respond to the questions. Truthful people will exonerate themselves. Deceptive people will often create distance, disassociation and separation by the way they use language, which we can talk about later. So what we've got to do is we've got to analyse what they're saying and what they're doing. That's the first thing. Secondly, we have to pay attention to their body language. So we need to look for conflict or contradiction between what they're saying and what their body language is. How's mine now? Well, it's interesting because yours is typical, typically what we call an evaluation gesture, right? So you're sitting there, you've got your finger across your lips, head cocked to one side, and you're nodding, which denotes a degree of agreement. That's a typical evaluation gesture. So what we need to do is look for conflict and contradiction between mm. what they're saying and what they're doing. And just getting back to the theme development, so I'm interviewing you for a theft. So we know through research, if I blame you for your behaviour, I make it substantially more difficult for you to confess. See, the example I like to use is uh, I was a detective at Flemington and we were interviewing a sex offender and we really had no evidence. And my partner goes in there and he says to him, he says, if you don't tell us what you did to this kid, we're going to lock you up, you're going to go to jail, your wife's going to leave you, your kids won't want to have anything to do with you. And I'm thinking, back then, I'm thinking, this guy just gave this suspect, potentially offender, a thousand reasons why not to confess, not, not one reason why he should or could, because he's actually blaming uh, him for everything. Right? So my partner gets out and I'm writing and this guy looks at me and he says to me, which I think is a very interesting question, he said, do you think I did this? And my response was, you know what? I don't care if you did this. I've got one question and one question only. Notice how I'm using silence? The rule is he who speaks next loses. And he says, what, what do you mean? I said, did you mean to hurt her? Now, that's an assumptive question, isn't it? That's the, what's the assumption there that he was involved? And he didn't say anything, but he did this. Just shook his head ever so slightly in the negative. I said, look, you know what? This is part of the theme development. Things happen, and they happen for a reason. We don't always know what that reason is. 
People don't judge you on one silly mistake. They judge you on the totality of your whole life. That's why there's erasers on the back of pencils. And next minute, his tears started coming out of his eyes and he confessed. And the FBI say that, you know, blame their upbringing, blame their employment condition, blame, but never, ever blame them because you make it substantially more difficult for them to confess. But is that the old good cop, bad cop in action there, do you think? Well, you don't need good cop, bad cop. I think you need empathy, but I think you also need the ability to show that no one's perfect. I've interviewed people and the hair on the back of my neck has stood up. But I know if I'm interviewing somebody, I've got to understand the purpose is to collect evidence, right? So we may not always have forensic, scientific, medical or cooperative evidence, Sometimes a witness becomes a suspect by the way they respond to answers and questions. But more importantly, and I've seen this in a lot of homicide cases, a truthful person will not only tell you what they saw or what they heard, but they'll often tell you what they felt. Deceptive people, if they're involved, won't do that. They can't do that because if they do that, they're admitting involvement. So I look for other emotions in the right place and and we we see sometimes uh, crocodile tears and all that type of thing. There was a a well-known case in Sydney, Kayesha Abrams, a young girl. It was a woeful crime. um, She was put inside a suitcase and the suitcase was torched. The mother and the uh, de facto boyfriend did a media conference and she comes out, she's got big glasses and she's got a big handkerchief across her face so you could hardly see any of her face and she's crying and, and whatnot. And at this stage, they hadn't found Kayesha's body. They didn't know where she was, and that was what they led people to believe. One of the concerns that I had was the de facto said, quote, she was such a wonderful child. Now, the problem with that is past tense. And he also said, we loved that child. Now, trust me on this. If you've ever spoken to a parent who's had their child abducted, they will never ever give up hope. Because they're snuffing out hope right there. Of course. Even in the extreme circumstances where death, they still find it difficult to comprehend. Yeah, and they both were charged of the murder. So when did you first cite a polygraph? I think the first time, like a lot of people, cited a polygraph was uh, watching American television shows and uh, looking at it and thinking... How reliable is that? How accurate is that? That was my initial. uh, But, you know, the funny thing is I fell into polygraph testing purely by accident. I was always interested in psychological profiling. And when I was over the States, I remember an FBI agent said to me, Steve, do you have polygraph testing in your police department? I said, no, it's very American, very Canadian. They said, oh, look, you know, we use it for frauds, extortions, homicides, sexual offences. Why don't you train up with us? And then you can take the technology back. And I thought, what a great idea. And I was lucky enough to do my polygraph internship with LAPD. They have their own polygraph unit, which falls within their uh, scientific investigation division. And they used it primarily back then. It was for gang-related homicides, but also sexual offences. And interestingly enough, on drug squad detectives, (laughs) because obviously influencers are working drug squad and whatnot, but they also did pre-employment screening for people. I guess it's got this controversy over it from the beginning, really, hasn't it? I mean, I love this idea that that William Moulton Marsden comes up with it when he's doing his uh, blood pressure equipment and he goes on to later create the Wonder Woman strip and... uh the lasso of truth. That's right. <laughs> wouldn't you love a lasso of truth? Eh? Oh, wouldn't we all? Absolutely. <laughs> and I guess that was part of Moulton's frustration at the lack of acceptance from science of this technology. How has this piece of machinery evolved over time? Yeah, look, obviously there have been developments. I mean, the the crude initial beginnings was just blood pressure, so monitoring changes in heart rate, blood volume, blood pressure and so on. And then 
as I think got into around about the 70s, 80s, they started measuring GSR, galvanic skin resistance, so sweat output from your fingertips and so on, and then also respiratory cycles. But, you know, I've always said this, even though I do polygraph testing, a polygraph is not a panacea to every investigation. I mean, it's an investigative tool in the absence of other, you know, forensic medical types of evidence. Usually I find some of the 82 homicide cases I've worked on, uh, a cold case unit will contact me and say, listen, we've taken as far as we can. We just want to determine whether or not it can help. So, yeah, it's not the panacea. People say that it can be beaten. Have you seen people beat the polygraph? What I say is people don't beat a polygraph. A polygraph is just an instrument that measures physiological changes at a given point in time. What I say is they beat the examiner because, A, they're not following a validated testing procedure. I've seen many, many people deviate from commonly accepted testing formats. Secondly, they don't ask the right questions. Got a great example for you. I was approached by the Homicide Squad and they had a case and they said, look, Steve, and they briefed me on what the circumstances and a body was found in a dam. And I read through the autopsy and the forensic pathologist couldn't establish the cause of death because the advanced uh, state of decomposition. So one of the investigators said, look, Steve, can you ask our suspect, our main uh, person of interest, whether or not he strangled the victim? I said, oh, that's a bad question. He said, why? Surely if he killed him, you know how he killed him. I said, well, actually, that's not the issue. What if he held him underwater and he drowned? He would know that if I ask him, did you strangle the victim? And he said, no, he knows he's telling the truth. He's going to pass that test. So if your questions are not clear and concise, it's going to allow a deceptive person room to wriggle out of. And secondly, it's an invalid test. What should be the question then in that, in that circumstance? If you don't know a cause of death, and he's, in this particular case, he said he had no involvement whatsoever, then you would ask, and I try not to use legalese terms, like did you conspire with? I'd say, okay, well, now what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you whether or not you had any involvement either directly or indirectly. Let me give you an example. Whether or not you were there, you lured the person there, you were present at the time he was murdered or you were the person who murdered him, whether or not you had anything to do with the case after the fact, whether or not you disposed of the body, all that sort of stuff. Because then they know exactly what the question is in fact asking them. Okay, But having said that, you need to look for things. I mean, I've had people hold their breath, deliberately move, put pins in their shoes, put fingernail polish. I've heard of people biting their cheeks and thinking about complex math problems, for instance, and trying to produce a different brain chemistry through that. Yeah. Well, actually, interesting point on that. When I did my initial training, I had to break into a car and steal some cash, right? It was all set up. But what I didn't know was, because that was my instruction, go to that car, break into it, and have a look and take the cash. Okay. But you will be interviewed by the police later on and you'll probably do a polygraph. So just deny it. Okay, so, right. so as I'm breaking in, just before I get out, the alarm went on the car. And I'm like, oh, shit. So I, I did a runner. Anyway, I was polygraph tested by Fred Aikham, who used to be in charge of the Oregon State Police polygraph unit. And they said, try to beat it. I said, no problem. So I'm thinking about, you know, hot-looking girls on the Gold Coast. I'm thinking about all sorts of things to try to, you know, dilute my mind. And But as soon as he asked that question, bang, you know, and that was a mock 
experiment. And you know about polygraphs, so... Yeah, absolutely. So I guess there's a small percentage of people who can consistently fool it, the machine at least, or the examiner? Yeah, they'll engage in, you know, countermeasures, whether it be physical or mental countermeasures, in an effort to distort the tracings. Although I must admit, it's pretty obvious. This equipment now, I've got video cameras, I've got sensors, uh, all sorts of stuff. So it's pretty obvious when people, you know, deliberately do that. And look, I've got to be honest with you, I'm very strict on this. I have a three-strike-and-you're-out policy. If they engage in those behaviours after the third warning, I stop the test and the investigators can draw their own conclusion based on that. And the conclusion is they're being deceptive. And I guess people have talked about the limitations of the polygraph and the strengths too, but the simple process is a stressful one, which can lead guilty people to confession. So it could be called really a fear detector as well. Yeah, and that's a fair call. I use this new technology now called iDetect. Now, we know when a person lies, it creates cognitive load. So when we lie, we become fearful of being caught in a lie, okay? So if I was to ask you what you did yesterday, and neurologically you're relying on memory through sensory input, you'd be able to tell me what you did, what you heard, what you saw, what you felt, conversations that took place. Why? Because you lived through them. Whereas if you're fabricating a story, you no longer have access to those memories and you have to fabricate them. For every one lie you tell, you have to invent two or three to protect yourself from the first one. So you get deeper and deeper and deeper. So it takes a lot of cognitive processing. Now, with this new technology I'm using, iDetect, in partnership with polygraph testing, what it does is it has an infrared camera and it measures ocular reactivity. So it looks for pupil dilation, blink rate changes, eye fixation, reading speeds, prolonged eye closure, which is a, a blocking gesture. What it does, it's like state-of-the-art, it does 60 computations per second per eye and over 100,000 during the test while the person's answering true or false questions. So combined, it's a very accurate process. See, I know when somebody's playing games in a polygraph, Sometimes it's hard to see when people may be engaging in uh, mental countermeasures, but with eye detect, the only thing they can really do is close their eyelids. So who are the best liars you've come across? You know, I, I get that question a lot. People say, well, you know, politicians, yeah, they'd have to be the best. Well, no, they're not that good at all. In my opinion, uh, pedophiles, they're very good at lying. They're very good at maintaining the facade. They're very good at misleading. They're very good at manipulating their victims, their treatment providers and everyone else in the process. You know, anecdotally, in my experience, they just, I think they know the, the general community uh, is abhorred by their behaviour. So it even requires a greater ability to deceive. And They're living a much bigger life of lies than your average crook who will tend to share it with somebody, partner or whatever. But this one, who are you going to share it with? Interesting point, Adam. I remember some of the information and intel I used to get from informers and whatnot. I've always said good crooks keep their mouth shut. Whereas a lot of crooks can't. You know, they have to boast. They have to brag. And Whereas I find pedophiles the opposite. Yeah, they'll get in their little groups but outside of their groups, it's not likely they're going to talk about their exploits. People talk about psychopaths like Ted Bundy and others who've been able to pass polygraph tests because they just don't have the emotion that others do. Is that a fair thing? Well, I have read research where they polygraph tested 12 clinically diagnosed psychopaths in the prison population. And they said, listen, you're going to be doing some testing. If you beat it, you'll get, I think it was about 50 or $100. I can't remember the exact amount, which in prison terms, that's a lot. So they had pretty good reason to try to beat the testing process. Not one of those 12 could beat it. Now, the difference is this. You or I may feel guilty about something we've done, right? Whereas a clinically diagnosed psychopath may not. 
but they're more concerned about being apprehended for their crime. You know, a lot of investigators or agents, when interviewing a psychopath, will make statements like this. If you don't want to help us solve this crime, think of the, the pain and the suffering and the anguish the victim's families are going through. Now, the problem with that is you're appealing to an emotion that simply does not exist. Whereas if you look at other interviews like Jeffrey Dahmer and that, one of the investigators said, how is it that you are so much smarter than we are? So now they're appealing to another emotion, which is ego. And bang, out it all comes. Now, this is very important with Ted Bundy because with him, they went through the third person thing because he wouldn't answer directly. But when he was given the chance to be an expert by talking in the third person, what would the killer do? He opened up like a watermelon falling off a truck. Yeah, great interviewing technique because the investigators realised that. These days you are consulting to Victoria Police and others. And we've been seeing multiple uses for the polygraph and we've been hearing in some jurisdictions it being used to monitor parolees. Do you think it has applications there or are we stretching it too far? Well, I I know for a fact in uh, the US they use it for monitoring uh, parolees but also convicted sex offenders. They call it the Sex Offender Treatment Program. And now uh, UK are using it and also Canada, which was more aligned to our legal system. So the theory is, firstly with disclosure testing and psychologists say this to me all the time, for me to deal with one of my clients who has a tendency to be attracted to children or sexually assault children or the rest of it, we need full disclosure because the theory is if you don't acknowledge or admit you've got a problem, then it's very difficult to work with if they're in denial. So that's the first part. But the second part is the sex offender treatment programs is part of the, in the States, they'll say, listen, you can be released earlier, but you have to undergo sexual treatment program. Part of that is you have to undergo polygraph testing at your expense. And the theory is it acts as an artificial conscience insofar as they think, well, if I'm released into the community and I uh, breach my parole, uh, conditions or I offend, you know, within 100 metres of a school or, you know, sexually assault a child, I have to do a test. If I fail that test, I get locked up again. So the theory is it can help in uh, monitoring and regulating and controlling because now there's ramifications for their behaviour if they, uh, you know, commit sexual offences on children. So I notice now they're actually in the UK, there was talk, I don't know where it is at the moment, but testing repeat domestic violence offenders, which is interesting. I mean, deception is part of our lives. I mean, we lie to impress, we lie to get ahead, we lie for financial gain, we lie for many reasons. And they're uh, pro-social lies, which are lies that are acceptable. You know, does my bum look big in this dress? No, it doesn't. Yeah. As opposed to more serious lies. But one thing research shows is that the more serious the lie is, the more tells there will be. And a lot of people think, I'm asked a lot, you know, do um, intelligent people, are they better liars? which the answer to that is no, because there will still be telltale signs. But you've got to identify those signs. I'll I'll give you an example. When you start talking, you start getting quite animated. You talk a lot with your hands, right? So let's just say I'm interviewing you and, you know, you're you're talking with your hands. Then all of a sudden you go into what I call lockdown. So it could be, um, you know, sitting back, hands, you know, clasped in front of you or, you know, sitting on your hands or something like that. And I see these other things like masking, concealment, blocking, behaviours, prolonged eye closure, all that type of thing. Well, then that 
signifies to me that, hang on a minute, why has his behaviour changed? So it's up to me as a good interviewer to ask the right probing questions to determine that. I get a fair indication before I do a polygraph or eye detect test, before I even start whether or not somebody's going to pass or fail, by the way they respond to the questions. Are they excluding themselves out of the narrative or are they taking ownership? And I say that a lot. And what I mean by that is if I asked you what you did yesterday and you said went to the shop what you're not saying is I went to the shop. So truthful people always include themselves in the narrative, whereas deceptive people will not do that. Um, I remember John Sharp. Do you remember John Sharp, the Mornington? And who could forget that one? I think we all watched that newscast where he was there sobbing and looking terrible. We all thought, he did it. Why do you think we all thought that? You know, I talk about this a lot and it comes down to gut feel. You know, sometimes we get a gut feel something is not right based on our intuition. I sort of want to go beyond that because sometimes we're very easily influenced by gut feel. I mean, how, how often have you met somebody and you think, yeah, this is a good guy and turns out later on he's a fraudster or something like that. And you think, what happened there? Like, how did I so misread the situation? So with John Sharp, I think the interesting thing that was born out of that doorstop was he gets out there, he was crying without the tears, but more importantly, he said, I'm a little bit worried now because police are making inquiries. Now, my concern there is, well, hang on a minute your pregnant wife and daughter has gone missing, why would you be concerned that the police are making... In fact, you would expect or anticipate that's exactly what the police would do. So why would you be concerned about that? So subconsciously, often we have brain fades and we let things out. So what you said before is right on the money. Good interviewers are good listeners, not just... Uh, good listeners, but also good observers. I think the police did this on purpose to put pressure on him. I suspect his phone was off and a whole bunch of other things. And of course, we discover sometime later that this guy's killed his wife with a spear gun, then gone and killed his little girl with a spear gun. It's just the most monstrous crime. And I guess the police were putting him in that space where they could judge his behaviour, and I guess other people could as well. Yeah, and really, when you look at it, I think it's about 96, 97% all your homicides are domestic-related, where the victim knows the offender and vice versa. The hardest uh, homicide investigations you'll investigate where there's no nexus between the offender and the victim, like serial killer, and there's no connection. They're very difficult to... I mean, yeah, they often have the same uh, modus operandi, but with domestic-related... I mean, as you know yourself, the nucleus starts at the family and works its way out. Alder James, the CIA spy turned traitor, said all you have to do to beat a polygraph is to have a good night's sleep and be nice to the operator. Is that true? I actually, I agree with that. <laughs> and, you know, here's the interesting thing that a lot of people don't know. Aldridge Ames failed his first two polygraph tests. And in fact, it's almost like the examiner didn't want to believe the head of counterintelligence failed a test. So, and as we know, they were having all these cash drops and he was being looked after and whatnot. But the point is, there's a classic example, like I mentioned before, of where somebody's influenced. So here's the boss, here's the person who's in charge. No way could he do that. Yet he failed the test. And uh, the polygraph supervisor allowed it to continue. And it was only after, you know, him being investigated that actually found the evidence and led to his conviction. I guess the big question for polygraph going forward is admissibility. And I guess the argument from the beginning is that it can't be admissible because it came from investigators, not science. But increasingly, science is catching up with this. And we're seeing things like functional magnetic resonance imaging. Yeah. What the hell is that? Will it be foolproof? So, 
Two parts to the question there. Firstly, admissibility of the evidence. Look, I worked on the um, Andrew Mallard case in WA. He spent uh, 11 years in uh, Casarina Prison for the murder of Pamela Lawrence. And I tested him and he passed the, the test. And in fact, because usually I work for police departments, this was from the defence, and it went to the Court of Criminal Appeal, uh, three Supreme Court judges, and they said, no, we won't allow its admissibility. And then they appealed it to the High Court. And I, I remember it was a 2-1 majority verdict against. Now, to be honest, I don't have a problem with that. And I'll tell you why I don't have a problem with it. Twofold. Firstly, I've seen some polygraph tests that have been conducted that woefully uh, failed the validity required of doing a test or the person doing the test wasn't certified or qualified to do the test or the questions were not you know, uh, appropriate. At the end of the day, our legal system's predicated on the basis that will be judged by our peers, the jury. So one of the problems with polygraph is insofar as, as admissibility. So not only is A, if it's not conducted properly or it's not a valid testing process or the person's not qualified or certified, but the jury's role is to determine guilt or innocence, not a single polygraph test. That's the issue. I mean, if you look at all the other types of evidence, uh, biological trace evidence, uh, yes, we found your biological trace evidence, your hair samples or your jumper fibres at the scene. Well, that's scientific evidence which allows a juror to infer whether or not the person was there or not. The next thing is whether or not the person committed the offence. That's another issue altogether. So whether it be biological trace evidence, gunshot residue, um, DNA, blood, you know, whereas polygraph is really usurping the role of a jury and that's why it's not admitted. But getting back to MRI, to answer your question on the MRI, how does that work? Well, let's just say we've got a killer who has a certain modus operandi. So let's just say he strangles his victims and he puts a scarf or he uses a scarf around the neck and it's a red scarf. Now, let's just say the investigators have not released that information for very good reason to the public and they've got seven persons of interest. Well, what they'll do with the MRI scanning is they will show images. Now, let's just say your suspects say, I've never, ever been in that house. Well, what they'll do is they'll show images of, say, 20 different lounge rooms. Let's say the victim or the deceased was found in a lounge room. So they'll show 20 different images of 20 different houses, but one of them will be the crime scene house. So the theory is there'll be, uh, I think it's the P400 recognition, where you see that image and bang, there's recognition and there's a spike which indicates uh, recognition of having been in there. It's a little bit like what we call a searching peak of tension test in polygraph testing. So then what they would do is they would show uh, a number of weapons, potential weapons used in the murder. It might be a hammer, a gun, a knife, um, you know, a rope, uh, a scarf. And once again, if, say, for example, only the offender would know what they used, and providing it's not being released to the public or the media, and then all of a sudden get a, a spike at scarf. Then they might show, you know, 10 different coloured scarves. So the theory is if you keep having hits on specifics of the crime, then you can narrow down the involvement of the person because if you'd never been in that house, why would there be any recognition? Yeah, so that's fascinating. So you had a 10-year career in the cops, but I'd argue that you'd probably done more for law enforcement since you left the police. So what would be your advice to young people who are thinking about a career in policing here or around the world? What would be your advice about starting on the right foot? Yeah, it's about being a good listener. I think 
If you look at a lot of the really effective detectives over the years, they're good at talking to people. They're good at listening. I remember the very first day I joined the police, one of the instructors said, you know, some people in this room would drive past a car and see the bonnet up and someone's head on the bonnet. Some people would think they're having mechanical problems. Other people would think, is that their car? Are they stealing it? So it's actually questioning things that may or may not look right. And I think some of the the most effective detectives I've ever worked with, they have a street sense about them. I remember I was uh, spending some time with LAPD Robbery Homicide Division and the captain of that division at the time, and he said to me, I'll never forget this, he said to me, he said, Steve, have a look out in that room. You'll see around about 45 detectives, overweight, high cholesterol, uh, wearing polyester blended suits with shiny backsides, but they're the ones who are going to knock on the doors. They're the ones who are the foot sloggers. They're the ones who are probably going to catch the killer. But one final question for you, Steve Van Apperin. Yep. Have you been telling the truth through this interview? I have. I have no reason to lie. You've got to look at the reason or the motivation why people would lie. So am I going to gain anything out of this interview? Probably Probably the reverse. (laughs) Now, my untrained mind tells me you weren't just by a whole bunch of things I probably can't put names on. You can put names on them. You're very valuable. Thanks for your time, Steve Van Apperin. Pleasure. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.